You're listening to Atheistically Speaking. Welcome to Atheistically Speaking, episode 85 with your host, Thomas Smith. This week, I have a very special guest, uh, Jonathan Figdor, with us today. Goes by John. Um, and you are the chaplain. I've got to make sure I get this right. The chaplain that works with the atheist community at Stanford. Did I get it right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, very happy to have you. Um, now, why don't we just uh, get started with the, the reason you're here. Get that going. You have a book coming out, and among other things. Right. So the book is called Atheist Mind, Humanist Heart, Rewriting the Ten Commandments for the 21st Century. And it's out now uh, on in Amazon and find bookstores near you. Uh, yeah, we hope you can take a look at it. Atheist Mind, Humanist Heart. And right. uh, this is co-authored, right? Exactly. My co-author is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and Stanford alum, uh, Lex Bayer, uh, who is also a board member of my organization, The Humanist Connection. Humanist Connection. So how did you guys uh, get started on this? Well, so uh, a few years ago when I when we launched the program at Stanford, uh, Lex read about us in the San Francisco Chronicle and we were featured in a story there. Uh, and he heard about there being an atheist chaplain at Stanford, which seemed very interesting to him. Uh, so he came to my office and wanted to talk to me about uh, some of his beliefs about his own process of losing his faith and about uh, what kind of challenges students were dealing with. And during our time uh, we spent together, we ended up talking about how so many students come to me and so many uh, colleagues have approached Lex and asked us, look, uh, I don't believe in God. I've given up my belief in God and supernaturalism, but I'm trying to figure out what's worth believing in. What, what's worth me? How should I know what's worth believing in? And so uh, we asked people to take on that question. We took this as our central question of the book, and we asked the question, what's worth believing in if you don't believe in God? So uh, the book attempts to give people a framework for how they can live a valuable, meaningful, ethical, and happy life without God. And we apply science, critical thinking, philosophy, psychology, compassion, and empathy to help people discover their own beliefs and assess their own beliefs and values. Well, that sounds like a very worthwhile uh, project. So, um, I, but you you mentioned you said uh, he he found out there was an atheist chaplain, but that of course was was inaccurate, right? That's not technically what you're doing. I, I, I find that interesting. That was a misprint, right? Or something. Right. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not an atheist chaplain, although I am an atheist. Uh, I'm actually a humanist chaplain. And one of these differences is that atheism only answers the God question. All it tells you is that someone doesn't believe in God. It doesn't answer any of the other questions that people are interested in, like, do you believe in human goodness? Or do you believe in, uh, you know, uh, empathetic morality? Uh, and so what uh, the reason that I call myself a humanist chaplain is to give people a sense of what I do believe and to give a sense of what the positive beliefs and values of our community are. Interesting. Now, I'm, I'm very – if you don't mind taking a, a, a quick detour here and we'll, we'll definitely get back to it. But I'm very curious about um, chaplaincy and stuff. I don't know much about it except that it's it's been in the news especially as regards the military and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering, are there atheist chaplains or does it tend to be humanists who happen to be atheists or is there uh, 
are there people sure. actually go by the name of atheist chaplain? Does that make sense? Well, right now, American atheists isn't willing to serve as an ordaining body to someone, although that mm. might change over time. They're not willing to serve as a religious sponsor for a chaplain, whereas the American Humanist Association is willing to serve as an ordaining body, which is why people have pursued humanist chaplaincy in the armed forces. Uh, there's just more support for this kind of thinking. Um, but just to explain the difference here. Um, it, you know, people are concerned about humanist chaplains. They think it might be a contradiction in terms, but I assure you it's not. Uh, a lot of what we do is similar to religious chaplains in that we provide counseling and support for students on campus, although we do it in conjunction with psychological counselors because we don't think it's responsible to offer uh, psychological advice without an advanced degree in psychology. <laughs> uh, we do much more counseling and kind of philosophical counseling work. Um, and then in addition, uh, I organize events for the community and educational opportunities to bring humanist and atheist speakers onto the campus to educate people about our worldview. And then the last part about what we do is organizing service projects and advocating for the atheist, humanist, agnostic worldview from within the Office of Religious Life. And this means that as a result at Stanford, it's not posed as in like there's the secular world and then there's the religious world. There's not that antagonism put there. Since we work within the Office of Religious Life, Stanford's programs are by and large very friendly to atheists and very welcoming of the non-religious community. Hmm. So do, um, I'm curious, do, do you – are you comfortable with humanism being called a religion? Is that uh, any sort of – troublesome kind of term? Do people refer to it as that? I mean, because you have all these chaplains, one for each religion, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden you have humanist chaplain. Does it, does right. it ever get looked at as like, oh, is this just another religion? Right. There's an active concern about this. In fact, uh, Center for Inquiry, I believe Tom Flynn and two uh, co-writers recently wrote a piece about why they think it's a bad thing for humanism to be considered a religion. Mm. Uh, and they do make some salient points there saying that, you know, it makes it harder to separate religion from irreligion, which is fair. But uh, in the end, I actually don't think that those are ultimately good reasons and that we ought to embrace the term religious, not because it really describes what we are, but it's the way that we can get fair treatment. So uh, one of the problems that we face is that there are special rights and privileges that are afforded to religious organizations. And that makes no sense to me. It doesn't seem like you should have to believe in God or supernaturalism to get certain tax benefits or to get uh, spe special treatment from the government. I don't think they should get that. And so by atheist humanist agnostics saying, hey, look, we're a worldview as well. We think that if you're if you're funding Christian organizations and giving them a tax benefit, you ought to provide a tax benefit as well to non-religious organizations. And so in our view, it's just about getting equality. If we thought that tomorrow we were ready to get rid of the religious tax exemption, secular and religious parties to be treated equally, then we probably wouldn't argue for this. But in the short term, this is the best way to gain equal treatment for atheists, which is, to me, the most important thing, uh, is, is getting that equal treatment, making sure that there isn't an unfair advantage enjoyed by religious organizations. So it's a way of just working within the current system, as imperfect as it might be, in order to get right. these services to people who might need them. Exactly. I mean, uh, it's look, if we wanted to, we could come up with an alternative term, say secular counselor or something like that. But it would take 10, 20, 30, 40 years for that term to actually to have achieve enough weight. parity. Right. Exactly. It won't 
won't have the same legitimacy as the term chaplain for quite some time. And the question is, why would we burden ourselves when we're already so, the, you know uh, prejudiced against in so many ways? Why would we put up yet another barrier to us? Yep. It seems like this is an easy terminological thing that we can do. And it actually kind of fits in the broad tradition of chaplaincy, which it's true, began with exclusively Christian chaplains, but eventually brought in Jewish chaplains and Muslim chaplains. And now, I mean, there's Buddhist chaplains, there's secular Buddhist chaplains, uh, the Quaker chaplains. Some of the Quaker chaplains end up being atheists. So there have actually already been atheist chaplains for some time within Christian organizations like Quakers and things like that. So it's very hard for me to say that the term religion is a coherent definer here. Anything that that refers to both the Mormon Church, the Roman Catholic Church, Reform Judaism, and say Zen Buddhism, I don't know if that's a coherent category. It seems like those are radically different things, and we all call them religions, but are they really pointing at the same concept? Hmm. I don't think so. Hmm, that's very interesting. Are there do you in your work are there ever atheists who uh, who take a look at humanism and are like, nah, not right for me. I, I, I need to go with a different, you know, does it, does humanism encompass kind of every atheist need or do you find people who, for whatever reason, I'm just very curious about this. Cause I, I never, when I was in college, I, I never, uh, I don't think we had a humanist chaplain or if we did, I didn't know about him or her. So, uh, so does that ever happen? Is it, is it, is there, is are humanist chaplains able to service basically all the needs of, of a non-religious person? So based on data provided by uh, Phil Zuckerman from Pitzer College, uh, it seems like a a pretty strong majority of atheists tend to be inclined towards humanism, tend to have broadly humanistic values. Hmm. And so that's kind of a a broad thing that we share in common. Of course, there are uh, people who have different values. For example, uh, libertarians uh, would be slightly different from humanists. (laughs) That's uh, a different religion, huh? I, I don't know if I call it a religion, <laughs> no, but I mean, I was it's, just making a joke. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I don't agree with libertarians. I don't, I, but I think that they're still a secular philosophy. So right, I don't see yeah. it as a, a religion in that way. Okay. Well, uh, so in addition to the book, you also have the Rethink Prize. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Right. So the central premise of the book is to get people to think about uh, their own beliefs, to ask themselves, what do I believe in? What's worth believing in? And so to stimulate people to ask this question, to actually go through our model and our framework and apply it to their own lives, we created this $10,000 Rethink Prize where people can go to our website at www.therethinkprize.com and they can enter their beliefs and justifications for their beliefs and then to get their friends to vote on them. And a panel of celebrity judges, including people like Adam Savage from the Mythbusters and Robin Blumner, the executive director of the Richard Dawkins Foundation, Hammond Mehta, among others, uh, will choose the final winners of this. Uh, And they'll receive a $1,000 cash prize. Ten winners will receive this. So we're really excited to give people a reason to actually sit through, sit down with pen and paper and try to put their beliefs down and figure out what they actually do believe in so they can lead authentic and meaningful lives. Bureaucratic question. Is this, uh, if I'm understanding this right, is are you picking 10 commandments and each winner who submitted a commandment gets a thousand bucks or is it 10 different sets of 10 commandments that win? Right. It's, it's the first one. It's 10. It, it's, uh, we're going to pick 10 commandments. Oh. There could be two, two or three people who win multiple ones there Ooh. if someone has particularly thoughtful ones. So someone could walk away with a few thousand dollars, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be different people. 
So I wonder if I should get together with my listeners here and maybe try to generate from from my listenership community a, a list uh, to to submit. What do you think? Should I, I think that's that? a fantastic idea. All right, and then I could try to get them. We can all come up with something by committee. All right, listeners, let me know if this is something you're interested in. Be sure to post on the oh. Facebook or the Twitter, and then uh, we can com- do it by committee, and then we could try to get ours up there. That sounds fun. I'll tell you, it's been a real pleasure working on this prize with Lex and reading all of the entries. Uh, I'll be honest, when we had a web contest, we thought we'd get just a torrent of, of you know, abuse comments and silly things. And no, actually, the vast majority of people taking part in this have been extremely thoughtful and articulate in their reasons. So we're really excited to show that there's a, a side of Internet commenting that people haven't noticed before. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, to be honest, I mean, to to, to credit the project you're doing, uh, it's a good project because it, it it's really not too hard to get the Ten Commandments better than the original Ten Commandments. Am I right? <laughs> It'd be pretty hard to do worse than the original Ten Commandments, in my opinion. A poem I wrote as like a eight-year-old, probably, I bet it would be better writing than the original Ten Commandments. They're just not very good. Sure. <laughs> well, you at least leave off the... For the Lord thy God, right? Right, yeah. There's a bunch of them that are about him, how jealous he is, and he's all concerned with what people think of him, and like, does he look fat in this outfit? Like, there's a bunch of weird command. I think that was one of them, right? Or, I mean, anyway, <laughs> it's pretty easy to improve upon him. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to what the end results are, which I'm sure will contain about, you know, seven to eight that this show has come up with, I'm sure. <laughs> Awesome. So November 30th looks like it's the deadline. Not sure if you mentioned that, but man, we got to get on it. That's not too many days. We got we got a big thinking process going on. So uh, Exactly. It runs through the month and we'll announce the winners on December 15th. All right. I can't wait. Um I I will uh, definitely cover that on the show. We can we can check out uh, can in one way or another we'll uh I'll announce whatever the winners are and, and relay that information because that seems really cool. Yeah, we're really excited about it, especially if the publisher decides they want to reissue the book. We want to try to include the uh, Ten Commandments winners in our reprinting. Mm. So uh, it's our hope to kind of use this as a tool to get people to think about these broader issues and it'll gain some traction by getting outside just the world of atheism, by reaching other people who have maybe given up their belief in God but aren't willing to call themselves that word. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about how the uh, the judges probably have quite a tough job ahead of them because when you think about it, it's like – they need to be they need to pick a, a good list that's like coherent and kind of varied and uh you know there might be a few versions of that that express similar you know kind of uh sentiments but they have to pick the best one and that's very interesting it's like a fantasy football draft for commandments they're going to have to do yeah that actually reminds me it would be good to tell you the structure of our book where the first half of it is about the nature of reality so the first 5 commandments deal with how we can know uh truth and how we can figure out things about the natural world the second half of the book is really about human behavior and human morality and how we can figure that out so it's interesting that that we also felt this real need to balance not just moral commandments, but also commandments about how you can understand the difference between truth and fiction and things like that. Wait, where are the commandments about how we can't worship anyone above you and your your writing partner? Did those not make the... They they didn't make the cut? Okay. All right. It's your book. Okay. All right. And so finally, I'm very... uh, Not finally, but uh, in terms of the the items here that we need to make sure we cover, uh, I'm very excited about this one. You and Matt Dillahunty. Debate yes. for the ages. You're going to tell him there's a God, right? Is that 
No. <laughs> no, yeah. Matt and I will be debating the question of whether or not morality is objective or subjective. And Matt will be defending his notion of moral facts. Um, I'm deeply skeptical about the idea of there being objective morality. I think that morality is ultimately subjective. Hmm. That is uh, a, a very inter- interesting discussion, and uh, I, I talked with uh, – are you familiar with the essay contest that Sam Harris did about uh, his book? Yes. Yeah, I uh, actually got the guy who won that contest, and we had a very long discussion about about it, and it, it it's going to be interesting. I'm very excited about this debate, and uh, you said that was uh, November 19th? The debate will be happening on November 19th. From 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time, and that will be on a Dogma Debate radio show. Well, if we have to advertise another podcast, I guess it's okay that they will be on the uh, Dogma Debate <laughs> podcast. Um, so, yeah, that's that's interesting to me that uh, you hold that view. Um, it, it seems to be one that it's it's very controversial. I, I mean, it's it's some people have a hard time accepting a morality that is both atheist or you know, it's, sorry, not atheist, but secular, uh, but also objective. But it sounds like uh, your point of view is that we don't even need that. We don't even need to 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 try to find that. Uh, balance there. We we could just uh, accept that it's subjective. Yeah, I actually just don't think that objective ethics is really coherent at the end of the day. So ultimately, there's two kind of ways of looking at ethics. The objective view of ethics has it that there are certain things called moral facts that exist in the world and are true regardless of whether or not any human being happens to perceive them. So, uh, for example, uh, in some interpretations of moral facts, moral facts supposedly exist before any organism evolves that could possibly have that moral fact contribute against it. So, for example, before any human beings ever existed, um, check fraud was immoral. Um, and lying uh, to your spouse is immoral. Uh, and so it just seems like that's an incoherent. Well, surely that's not a point of view that Matt Dillahunty subscribes to, is it? Well, I think ultimately anyone who believes in objective morality is going to have to face the fact that objective morality is divorcing morality from human experiences and preferences. Once it becomes objective, it's not based on any one individual being's perceptions. Instead, it's supposed to be universalizable to everyone. And that doesn't make sense. It also has the additional problem, not only of uh, moral facts obtaining before human beings evolve, but what if the Earth were to get by an asteroid tomorrow? Would uh, check fraud be wrong after the Earth ceased to exist and there were no human beings left? Would it be wrong to murder if there were no organisms that could possibly be murdered? That doesn't make sense to me. On the other hand, our subjective view of morality has it that morality is a creation of of animals, uh, or in our view, of human beings. And that we come together and create morality together out of our desire for cooperation and protection. Uh, Mm. I think the most classic explanation of this is the social contract theory, which has been corroborated in recent years by the research done by Professor Axelrod in game theory. Hmm. Well, I I know he said we you you already emphasized this a bit in other podcasts, but I I just can't help it. I have to ask because I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know that those things that you described are mutually exclusive. Uh, I'm uh, maybe I'm sure you've heard this argument, but. It seems like, uh, from my understanding of Matt Dillahunty's point of view from listening to his show, um, I mean, he acknowledges that morality is something we invented, but there can still be an objective thing that we invented. I mean, 
they're, they're, we kind of, economics doesn't make sense independent of humans or before any being evolved. But once you do have a set of humans involved, could there not be an objective answer to economic questions? I mean, just because that didn't exist before humans, it still makes objective sense that you wouldn't uh, take your country's entire currency and burn it to the ground. And, you know, there's still questions that have objective answers. No, right? no. It, see, that doesn't make objective sense. That makes subjective sense. What you said was, you know, the reason why these things are wrong is because all the people in the country wouldn't want you to do those things. And if you're basing it on the preferences of individuals, then you're talking about a subjective view. It, you can't generate an objective view based off people's subjective preferences. If their preference to not be, you know, even if, for example, we could pull every human being that had ever lived. And even if there was one moral value, say that no one wants to be tortured for three days and then murdered, even if every human being that has ever lived would agree to that, that wouldn't make it objective. That would just make it something that we subjectively agreed about. Uh, it's a category mistake. You cannot generate an objective moral value just from subjective consensus. Um, and so that's where we think that the problem is really quite fatal for the objective view of morality. It doesn't make sense. If you want to base morality on human experiences, then you are talking about subjective morality. Hmm. I, I think uh, that's going to be very interesting to see how this this goes with Matt Dillahunty because I, I suspect that you're going to agree on a lot more than maybe you'd think, but it might just be a question of, of language there, framing it differently. That's that's really curious. Yeah, in all frankness, there's some possibility that this debate will be an absolute wash because <laughs> he just wants to call something objective that isn't. And you know, I, but Dillanti never gives up. <laughs> well, what I what I will say of of Matt's view, as I understand it so far, is that it's the closest possible thing to objective morality we could come up with. I mean, certainly basing it on the maximally subjective perspective would be the best approximation of objective reality, but that's not the same thing as objective reality. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting though. And, and oh man, I, I really just can't resist talking about this because I find it so interesting. <laughs> I, I hope it hasn't been uh, ground. You've covered too much already on other shows that my listeners listen to, but my question, I guess for you, would be where where is the line between something that's an objective result of physical laws? I mean, if we have a very simple set of machines, very simple, um, and we start to form judgments about uh, those machines, I guess you could call them preferences or something, that are very, very directly based on physical laws, you could come up with very concise objective answers to those. But where does it in, I mean, as an atheist, I mean, you don't think that we're more than the sum of our parts, right? I mean, we are, we are very, very complicated, but still physical beings subject to physical laws, right? No, obviously we're the children of God. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so no, that's so, so I actually, I actually, I'm not even sure if I understand your question. Are you asking? Uh, can you uh, restate it for me, just so I can understand? Uh, sure. Apologies if I didn't state it right. But uh, no, no, no. When we're talking about a, a system of uh, of uh, of beings, I guess I could conceive of complex, but but still very directly dependent upon physical laws. A uh, complex sort of group of say machines or something where you would want to make moral determinations for them. And it seems to me that since they're all, you could, assuming you knew the programming or whatever, you know 
right. what every part of their brains, uh, what what's responsible for every part of them and their experience. Um, couldn't you say that because you have all these physical uh, ingredients and you know the the laws and everything, it's all deterministic. Isn't there objectively better or worse things for these beings? And at what point, if we become, more, is it that humans are just so complicated that? There's some, you know, it's not like there's indeterminism. We're still dependent on physical deterministic to our knowledge laws, right? Sure. So I think here's where the category mistake happens. Um, and this is a, something that I think Sam Harris makes a mistake about as well, but, but we can get into that further. It's that you can objectively show a few things. You can objectively show that two and two is four, right? There's mathematic proofs that I could show you that prove that definitively true. And that's because we invented what the concepts of two and two mean and how they relate to each other. These are human constructs. Also, we can measure the distance of a star and we can have an objective answer. It's X number of meters based on our uh, last measurement, right? Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about when we're talking about human values is not something that you're measuring off of a tool. We're talking about people's experiences. We're talking about people's preferences. We're talking about people's beliefs. Some people would consider, uh, some people's morals are simply different from other people. For example, in the United States, we have a very individualistic view of life where we don't have a very strong social safety net. There's a lot of people who are able to become quite wealthy. There's kind of that that view that uh, you're able to get as much as you want in this country. There are some enormously wealthy people here. And then there are others who are really not very wealthy. And, and we allow that. That's part of our society. We consider it moral that some people who work harder are able to get a lot of money and other people who are who uh, maybe don't have those necessary skills and they don't get as much money. So this is the view that there, so some things are measurable, but human morals are not ultimately measurable because they're different in different places. So in the U.S., we have a very individualistic system. On the other hand, if you compare this to Southeast Asian Confucian cultures, uh, these Confucian cultures really place a strong value on family and on togetherness. And actually, they have laws that say that children have a legal obligation to care for their ailing grandparents later in life. Now, this is totally foreign to us in the U.S., although it seems to me like it's a pretty good idea, because when you're elderly, you're kind of in a similarly vulnerable state as when you're a child. It it makes sense that we would want this care to happen. So when I look at Southeast Asian cultures and the way that they live, I say that's a moral way of living. It seems perfectly reasonable to me. And when I look at the United States and the way that we live here, it also seems broadly reasonable. I mean, I don't think there should be as much a gap between the rich and the poor as we have in this country. But I think that individualism is very important to me and that, you know, I believe in, in, you know, uh, the idea of that people ought to be able to do whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting other people, a very libertarian idea of personal freedom. And that's not compatible with those other views. But it doesn't strike me that one of these views is correct and the other one is wrong. What it actually strikes me as is people value different things based on where, what society they're raised in, based in what talents and skills and dispositions they have. And that that's what we're really talking about is people's preferences. And since those preferences are ultimately subjective, you can't generate an objective view from them. Does this view devolve into moral relativism? I mean, an extreme moral relativism where you really can't say – you know, FGM is wrong or whatever. How do you prevent that sort of argument? Or so this you... is what people are most ultimately afraid of when they say that yeah. morality is subjective rather than objective. They're afraid that we're just going to fall into crude relativism and we're going to say 
everyone's opinion is equal. Uh, ISIS thinks that it's a great idea to, to uh, perform female genital mutilation. Who are we to judge ISIS? Well, that's their uh, culture and, and their... A, uh, this seems like a, a completely flawed view. So just because we don't acknowledge that there is one objective answer doesn't mean that we can't have a reasonable discussion about these things. For example, Sam Harris gives us this great example in the moral landscape of talking about health. You know, we don't have the definition of what the healthiest person is or who the healthiest person is. But we do have some concept of what healthy is, and it does involve things like not vomiting all the time or not bleeding out of your arm at a constant basis. So just because we don't have an objective measure of something doesn't mean that we can't have a reasonable discussion about the subjective values that are influencing that. So it seems to me like the fear of relativism is really misplaced. Uh, There is no relativism problem. The problem is people have always been able to argue these things. This is how democracies work. People with different preferences bring their views up and they debate them in the public square. And the one that uh, the one that people find most convincing is the one that wins ultimately. So, man, I don't know. I'm not entirely convinced. And it's also it's it's interesting that you use. Harris's argument there, someone who was arguing for an objective morality, <laughs> and you're kind of using the same argument to argue against an objective morality. It's, I'm, I'm going to have to think that one over a bit. The similarity between Matt Dillahunty, Sam Harris, and my argument is that all of us think that morality ought to be based on the experiences of living creatures that are able to suffer and feel pain. We all agree that's the standard. The difference is Sam Harris thinks that that's a neurological standard that he can apply that can be measured, and I don't believe that's true. And Matt Dillahunty believes that there are moral facts that are somehow detectable, and I don't believe that that's true. Uh, Ultimately, we still do believe that we're talking about what individuals want, and that's the commonality that we all share. The difference is that I acknowledge that as soon as we're talking about individuals' preferences and individuals' experiences, we're talking about the realm of subjective ethics. And Sam Harris uh, wants to call that objective, which for good reason, but I just disagree with his characterization of that. Hmm. Okay, well, thank you for that. Uh, the the summary there. That, that does make sense. Um, I have a lot more questions, but I think I'm going to just – Hold them and think about it and wait for that debate. And maybe uh, if uh, things – depending on how it goes and what, what questions I might still have or the or my listeners or dogma debate listeners might still have, maybe we could get a follow-up at some point after that debate. Would that be possible? Yeah, I'm absolutely happy to talk about these things. You know, uh, One of the problems is that there's just not enough views out there. And a lot of people hear one view and think that's the atheist view. It's great that Matt has his perspective and Sam has his perspective and I have mine. It gives people options. There's different views out there. Awesome. Okay, so one thing um, I really wanted to ask you about was how did you get into all this? Where did you... Where did you start? I mean, were you raised religious? Were you raised atheist? How did, uh, how did, how did your path lead you to here, I'm wondering? So I grew up in a uh, vaguely Christian home. Uh, I grew up with a home with a, an atheistic Jewish father and mm. a deistic Christian mother. So I really didn't have religion imposed on me at an early age. Um, my parents taught me that you know critical thinking was important, and they didn't pressure me to believe any one thing, which was really nice. I actually came to lose my uh, faith during confirmation class when I was trying to become a member of the United Church of Christ uh, <laughs> Bad in timing. my town. 
Uh, maybe not so much. I mean, okay, I thought it was time. great. You know, we sat there and we would read the Bible every week, and it was pastored by a great minister who was very thoughtful and wasn't willing to, sorry, wasn't going to shy away from the difficult questions. We really read the whole book cover to cover. And by the end of it, I realized I don't get my beliefs and values from this 2,000-year-old book that has very little relevance to modern beliefs and, and ethics. Uh, I actually get my beliefs and values more from the Enlightenment tradition. And so I ended up moving away from uh, religion and moving towards atheism at that point. What age were you at that, at that point? Uh, I think I was about 14 years old, which is when confirmation class Precocious. happened. Precocious. <laughs> during high school. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so... It also helped that I grew up in a town that was extremely secular. Uh, Scarsdale, where I grew up, was a place where, you know... A, in classroom, you would never hear people bring up God as the answer to a moral problem or an ethical problem. That was mm. just not the kind of thing people did. If people believed, it was something that they did privately and they didn't shove it in people's faces. It was a very secular environment. And I actually found myself in a similar environment at Vassar College for uh, for college where, uh, you know, I didn't know anyone who attended church on anything approaching a regular basis. You know, at, at best, I knew people who went to synagogue when their parents pressured them when they came home for the holidays. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was really not a lot of religiosity in my life. And it wasn't until I left Vassar and spent a year working in rural Montana uh, doing something called the uh, called AmeriCorps, which is essentially the Domestic Peace Corps. Uh, I was working in a in a uh, domestic violence shelter in rural Montana, uh, and it was when I was out there that I realized, geez, there's people who actually believe this stuff. There's people yeah. who believe the Earth is six thousand years old, and there's people who believe that you know God gave us you know control of the Earth, and we ought to do with it as we want, and we don't have to worry about global warming because you know God will take care of it. And that was frightening for me because. I didn't realize that people took this religion thing so seriously. I thought that most people got their beliefs, their morals from, you know, secular philosophers. And once I realized this was not the case, uh, I applied to Harvard Divinity School to get a uh, MTS degree, which is an academic degree in the study of religion, where I wanted to study the new atheists in Divinity School and study something that I called belief justification theory, meaning why do you believe what you believe? <laughs> wow. Uh, and so, yeah, I went to Harvard and studied that there. And when I was in divinity school, I learned that there's tons of atheists out there writing fantastic books about why there isn't a God, about why God is a, a bad guy if he did exist, or why they think God is implausible. And, and then I realized that there was way more need for people to focus on not the journalistic side, but on the community building side, on trying to provide a replacement for people for religion, an alternative to religion, so that when people have young children, they don't feel that desire to go right back to the churches that they came out of when they were teenagers. Huh. Let me ask you, it just sprang to mind now, I have several questions, but the one that uh, just is foremost, what do you think about the Sunday Assembly? Do you have an opinion on that? I love it. It's not my thing. I would never, uh, it's not like my, I don't like the singing together thing, but that's just <laughs> my own weirdness. Um, I absolutely love it. I'm a strong supporter of it. Uh, the more different varieties of atheism that exist, the more different ways to be secular they are, there are, the better. I think this diversity only serves us in the long term. And what would be great is if all atheists could get together and decide that, you know, however people want to not believe in God would be great. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. 
Um, and I think it's a, just a great opportunity to just, uh, you know, they, they'll have great speakers. They'll have, I mean, <laughs> I'm totally with you. I probably would never go, but <laughs> it seems like a great idea. Um, you know, also, I think it's for a different demographic group. You know, I, I run a college community. I work with a lot of college and graduate school students. It's a very young community. Uh, on the other hand, if you have, you know, a family, you have kids, I can understand the real desire for somewhere on Sundays to bring your kids where they can sing and kind of learn moral values in a in a uh, cooperative worldview place, in a place where people share beliefs broadly. Uh, and so I think that's a fantastic opportunity for them. Absolutely. Because we, what do we want, on the other hand, them to go back to the churches that they left? It just makes no sense. Yeah, and it seems like the common argument is like, oh, now it's just becoming another religion. And I always think like, well, the bad part of religion is all the stupid beliefs that are based on not enough evidence. Like, that's the bad part. The good, <laughs> there's a lot of good parts to religion. You know, there's charity and look, there's gathering and there's a lot of good things. Let's just keep those. Look, I got news for you. There is no meaning of the word religion. Right. I mean, any yeah. one word that points out Roman Catholicism, the Mormon Church, Zen Buddhism, uh, secular humanistic Judaism, uh, and uh, I don't know, Hinduism, what do those things all share in common? They don't share an epistemology. They don't share a, a, the number of gods. They don't share the way that you believe. They don't share anything. And so we realize that this category of religion, it's a construct. It's something that we invented, and it's not a very precise category. Uh, and it seems like what we're really talking about with these things, the better term for them than religions would be worldviews. And religious worldviews happen to be worldviews that are predicated on faith, whereas secular worldviews are worldviews that are predicated based on uh, scientific understanding of the world or however you want to characterize secular worldviews. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would hate to lump everything in together under the category of worldview because, like you say, I mean – there surely has to be a difference between basing your belief system on supernatural claims versus not. I mean, I mean, it seems to me that I mean, I, I think that you're right that a lot of people try to just assume all religion is on the side of supernatural claims and, and you know, anything that's not is not religion. But it, it's definitely not that neat and clean. But there is a distinction there, right? I mean, you're not equivocating between every sort of worldview, are you? No, absolutely not. There's certainly differences here. But again, uh, the category religion doesn't seem to share anything among all the ad all the groups that are in it. Usually, if we want a word to refer to a group of things, they should all share something in common. And there's nothing that's shared in common between, say, Zen Buddhism and uh, a fundamentalist pastor in Kentucky who believes in snake handling. There's just not a similarity. Hmm. Um and I think it's a mistake for us to pretend like there is. If we can kind of get comfortable with the idea that religion is kind of a loose term. I mean, people I hear on a regular basis, if, if you love football, then football is your religion. Well, I think that's a kind of abusive uh, use of the term. But at, this, at the end of the day, there are people who that's the thing that they care most about, who, you know, they, they want to go see, I don't know, the Patriots play every year. And to them, that might actually be their replacement for what's most important. So that's it for part one of the interview with Jonathan Figdor. Now, I 
divided it such that I'd have time on Thursday's show to discuss comments and stuff from last week because there was a lot of reply uh, replies in response to that. So I definitely want to be sure to do that. Um, so I, I this this was a bit longer of a half, a little more than half, and then on Thursday it'll be a little less than half to give us some time to talk comments and stuff. I want to thank John for coming on, of course, and I'll thank him again in the second episode. Also, I'd like to remind you guys to go on patreon.com slash atheist and support the show. Um, I think since this is one of those two-part interviews, I'm going to try to get this one out really soon. So this episode for patrons, uh, the next episode will be out nice and early. I'll, I'll try to turn that around real quick. Um, and uh, please do that. And also, if you could please kindly uh, go on to iTunes and give me a review, I'd appreciate it. I want to re- read an iTunes review of the week, but it's going to be an iTunes review of the half year, <laughs> quarterly iTunes review. Um, sometimes, although if people wrote more, sometimes it takes a while for them to screen the interviews for whatever reason, there's like a several day delay, but, uh, uh, so if you did, don't worry about it, but if you didn't get on there and write one or Stitcher as well, uh, that's a way you can help the show. If you're, you know, don't happen to have the, the extra dough to, to be a patron. So, all right, with that, I will bid you a fond farewell and see you on Thursday or if you're a patron then much earlier. All right. Adios.